Welcome to New Perceptions Podcast, the official podcast of the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry. The New Perceptions Podcast is for education, information, and entertainment purposes only. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the official policies of the entity. This podcast in the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry does not support or condone the legal use, distribution, or sale of psychedelic substances. Furthermore, the topics discussed should not be solely used to diagnose, treat, or prevent disease or conditions. And reading or listening to this podcast does not constitute an occupational relationship. The content discussed does not constitute medical advice, and any specific medical questions should be directed toward or personal health care professional. If you were listening to us on the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry website, it would be easier for you and better for us if you would please consider following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you will be notified when the latest episode airs. I am Dr. Tyler Chervested, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and it's my privilege to welcome you to this author interview of the edition of the podcast. Dr. Ben Nissen obtained his undergraduate degree at the University of Colorado Boulder and attended medical school at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine. He is currently a PGY-4 psychiatry resident at the University of Kansas Health System in Kansas City, Kansas. Dr. Kelly Beisel obtained her undergraduate degree in biology and chemistry at Mid-American Nazarene University and attended medical school at Kansas City University. She completed psychiatry residency and child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at the University of Kansas Medical Center. She is currently a consultation and liaison psychiatrist at the University of Kansas Health System in Kansas City, Kansas. Their article, Ketamine-Induced Episode of Insight, a case report, can be found on the latest issue of the journal, available online now. Um, ben and Kelly, welcome to the New Perceptions podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Ben, could you kind of tell the listeners out there who maybe haven't had a chance to read your piece yet what it's all about? Yeah, so um, this was a case that uh, happened when I was um, on the consult service. And um, briefly, it was um, a case of a 33-year-old um, Hispanic male patient uh, with a known history of schizophrenia who was admitted initially to our inpatient um, psychiatric hospital due to worsening psychosis. Um, after some unsuccessful attempts to um, sedate this patient at the inpatient hospital. Uh, he was transferred to our, our main medical center. And um, interestingly, on the way over to the main uh, campus, he received a one-time dose of intramuscular ketamine. And um, why I say that's interesting is because by the time I came to evaluate this patient in the emergency department, um, he had had a little bit of a change um, in his behavior. Um, and so this case report really looks at um, some of the changes that he exhibited after receiving IM ketamine. Um, and then uh, I take that opportunity to explore um, maybe some reasons why we, we saw these changes in this patient um, uh, after he received this medication. And before we kind of delve into those changes, Kelly, could you kind of give us a little bit of the background uh, about this patient? What were his previous diagnoses and treatment courses? Yeah, so he had had um, a pretty lengthy uh, schizophrenia history, um, multiple hospitalizations, kind of um, early um, adult onset, um, and had tried multiple psychotropics as well. And so this is kind of another hospitalization kind of in the course of uh, multiple for him. Um, I would say most of his symptoms really were around kind of the paranoid schizophrenia um, type. So a lot of command, auditory hallucinations, um, commingled with a lot of anxiety and depression and just kind of par general paranoia. 
And, and then, Ben, you were saying that he was transferred to the ED where you were at. What were kind of the presenting symptoms that led him to the psychiatric hospital that he was coming from? Yeah, great question. So um, so he had been dealing with a about a three-week history of increasing frequency and severity of the command auditory hallucinations uh, that uh, Dr. Beisel was talking about, specifically uh, which that concerned the family what were the hallucinations telling him to hurt himself. Um, and so they had been kind of getting worse and worse over the course of these three weeks, um, uh, culminating in this moment where he broke a mirror at home and uh, was contemplating acting on those suicidal thoughts by slicing his wrists. And ultimately he was um, able to kind of steer clear of these thoughts. And, um, and then a family member brought him in thinking that maybe he was being non-compliant on his psychotropic medications um, and just kind of, you know, concerned about um, how he had been living the last few weeks and wanted to see if we could um, titrate, make some changes on his medications so that uh, he would do better long-term. And, and during that transfer process, Kelly, do we have any um, idea of why they picked ketamine as the agent to give him as opposed to like a benzodiazepine or an antipsychotic? I just feel like that's more commonly seen. And, and do we have any insight into what the decision was behind giving ketamine? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, we don't have that information because it was en route. Um, from what I can tell, though, he had uh, had multiple rounds of um, benzodiazepines and antipsychotics um, prior to transfer. And so I'm not exactly sure for the reason that they chose the ketamine, but I do know his symptoms were refractory to kind of the typical agents that had already been used. In fact, I believe he was on two antipsychotics um, that they had tried to use for agitation. And then Ben, when you finally saw him down in the ED, can you kind of tell us just what, what did he look like when, when he first presented? Yeah. So, um, you know, this, for me, this is really where things got interesting, right, right, right off the bat. Um, so I had, I'd been made aware of, um, of the IM ketamine uh, being given route, um, but I, I didn't get a whole lot of information about this patient, um, um, about how he had been doing until I went to see him. And so um, thinking back, um, one of the most striking things was just when I walked in the room, um, he, he just appeared extremely calm. Um, he was sitting up in his bed when I first entered the room, actually singing to himself in a very gentle, kind of serene manner. Um, and um, as I went through my assessment, um, he was um, very uh, reasonable um, with answering questions in a direct manner. Um, he, he was a little sedated, but I would say he was grossly oriented um, and able to describe sort of a lot of the details around how he ended up at the main campus. Um, and then um, his, his mood he described as, as being kind of serene and calm, uh, which was a little different than uh, his presenting um, mood um, at the inpatient unit where he was extremely depressed and um, exhibiting a lot of that paranoia that we had talked about earlier when he first uh, first came in. I think those are kind of the highlights of, of how, I, how I viewed his presentation. Um, he was still having active auditory hallucinations, um, hearing several voices, um, but 
didn't seem all that distressed by them um, and uh, didn't uh, really engage much um, in, in talking about um, like who the voices may have represented or, um, or uh, uh, what they were asking him to do. He was much more focused on kind of staying in the present moment um, and staying calm. Kelly, you're, you're on staff and you probably see a lot of patients that come into the ED with similar symptoms. Um, how did this patient compare to those and what was really um, kind of drastic and, and different about this encounter compared to so many of the other ones you've seen? Yeah, I think for him, um, in comparison to other people struggling with, you know, paranoid schizophrenia, he had a level of insight or was at least able to describe his symptoms um, when we were just kind of asking about past psychotic symptoms and current psychotic symptoms in a way that um, I hadn't ever seen before. Um, I think with, you know, Dr. Nissen and I, we were kind of thinking um, it was almost like a textbook, how he was able to describe like in, I don't even know if I want to say third person maybe, but as if he was looking down upon himself, um, what he was going through. And so he was able to say, this is what's happening when I'm experiencing these voices. This is what it feels like. Um, he felt kind of like it had been, um, I think, um, Ben, you can correct me, but I kind of like it, he was in a, a cruel trick or he said something about um, like a practical joke or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, if you don't mind, I'll jump in there a little bit. Um, so what he described to me was um, was very interesting. And the first time that I had heard this from um, a patient in an active psychotic state, he had described kind of life living with, with schizophrenia. And he was telling me that um, the best way he could describe it was that he was living in the middle of a terrible practical joke in which he was the target or kind of the, um, the brunt of the joke. And he did get kind of concerned as he was divulging this information and kind of turning the conversation on me, like, can you imagine, you know, if you're walking around in life and you can't tell, like, who wants to harm you or your family and who actually might be trying to help you? Um, and then he went on to describe as, um, as this kind of builds in his head, it can get worse and worse, uh, to the point where he, he has a hard time sort of discerning reality from the, the fears that he kind of ruminates on in his head, um, to the point where he feels like the, the final act of the joke is, um, would be his death. Um, so that was just a, a very extreme take, you know, um, on kind of, kind of like an open book, you know, he, he really just gave me this, um, this unfiltered view at, at his thought process and the, the content that was sort of driving, um, his, his life in those three weeks leading up to hospitalization. And, and I think was, it was like, no, oh, sorry, you no, can, no, I think for me, it was kind of the first time that I had ever heard someone describe in such great detail everything that they were going through in that state. And I feel like we see a lot of people struggling, you know, with psychotic symptoms or in an active psychotic state, but you really don't understand fully because you're not them what they're experiencing. So to see it from his perspective, um, or at least have him describe what he felt like it was happening, um, 
we felt like was just extremely interesting. And it kind of helps you understand why the paranoia, why the agitation, why the fear um, based on the thoughts that he was having about other people. And so I had ne just had never had any schizophrenic patients be able to articulate it that well, um, or, you know, really as far as awareness, um, have that awareness of schizophrenia in general or their psychosis. And um, so that was kind of striking to us. Yeah, that was absolutely the most striking part of when I read through the, the case report itself was just this high degree of explanation and articulation about the problem that I don't commonly encounter with patients who have severe psychotic symptoms. Um, their disorganized thought processes really, I think, prevent them from doing that. And so being able to kind of distill it all down and crystallize it into a great metaphor like that, I think, was was something that is unique. Do we have any idea how long this episode lasted for him or if there were any lasting effects from it? Yeah, so I can speak on that a little. Um, and one more point um, about the that insight. I do remember him specifically saying that this was the first time that he had been able to explain to a provider um, his experience living with schizophrenia. And so I thought that that was also an interesting um, point about, about his experience. Um, so I continued following him on the consult service, uh, which was extremely helpful uh, to get some continuity in his care. Um, and he ended up, he stayed on our service for, for a few days. Now, what was a little disappointing, um, I think for me initially was uh, that about 48 hours after um, our initial conversation, I, I saw him on a, on, the, on a floor, up on the floor, medical floor, and he, he didn't have a lot of um, memory about our conversation. Um, now, he, so he didn't remember without prompting what we had talked about, but then when I described back to him sort of what he had told me about living in a practical joke. Um, he sat there uh, with just very, this contemplative face and was like, that makes a lot of sense. And then we had this really great conversation about um, how that sounds like something that he probably would have said. And that as I described kind of that lifestyle to him, he said, you know, that is exactly what it's like living with this disease. So it was, it was like his recall was impaired a little bit, but as soon as I was able to kind of give, give some of these details, um, uh, some of it resonated with him. So I don't know if, you know, that was an effect of the ketamine wearing off or, you know, um, you know, some other uh, factor, like, because at one point he had been treated for delirium you know, so it's hard to it's hard to know uh, definitively why there was this lapse in um, in memory initially. But uh, I thought it was really neat that despite him not remembering our conversation, he was able to uh, understand and make sense of kind of what I was telling him. How about from an agitation standpoint, or an aggressiveness standpoint, or even a positive symptom standpoint? Um, were, was he having any more of those outbursts, or did that seem to abate as well after the ketamine? So um, there was one episode where he, he did try to elope, but it, it was not in an aggressive manner. Um, uh, he had gotten a little confused about moving from one hospital to the, 
the main campus um, and just wanted to get back somewhere safe. And so with some gentle redirection, he went back to his room. Um, he did stay with a um, one-to-one constant observer throughout his time at the main campus, but he actually required no um, PRN agitation meds um, after from the time he was admitted to main campus to the time he transferred back to the inpatient hospital, which was really interesting to me because prior to tra- initial transfer, he had, you know, been receiving those PRN medications for agitation uh, pretty much routinely, you know, as, as often as he could receive them. Yeah, this this is all very interesting. Um, as longtime readers and listeners know, we had a previous case report um, from one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Polara, about a similar patient who he saw at a different hospital who was given ketamine. And I'm just kind of curious what you guys think it is about ketamine or what's specific to the ketamine uh, dissociative component or just the drug itself that seems to be resulting in these psychotic patients who have very calming effects, even if they are short-lived, you know, a week or two. Um, But it seems to have profound responses. I'm just kind of curious if you guys have thought about that at all. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure of, you know, kind of directly why the reason is. I think that ketamine is one of those um, you know, drugs that has a lot of proposed mechanisms of action, but I feel like it's a little bit gray sometimes once those are further investigated about why it's doing what it's doing, um, kind of like a lot of our psychotropics. Um, I do think for this patient, and I have to question, um, with his history of depression, how ketamine is playing a role in his depression, or um, could there have been an element of depression and, you know, psychosis together? It's hard to tell how that plays a role given his history of paranoid schizophrenia as well. And so I think he might be a person who, even if he had major depressive disorder with psychosis, it'd be really hard to to tell because of his um, history of schizophrenia. So who knows if, um, how those are, you know, interplaying and, um, you know, how ketamine is going to play a role too, just with the depression standpoint. But I think it's all, you know, really interesting to think about why and, you know, leads to some further investigation for sure. Yeah, I think the depression pathway that you laid out there is is a really excellent one. We know that schizophrenic patients have depression at very, very high rates, and they're usually refractory to most of our pharmacologic agents. And so ketamine offers kind of a novel way to get it treating that. And so if you have a disorganized kind of schizophrenic brain um, and then superimpose MDD with psychotic features over the top of it, I think it would be very hard to differentiate or um, separate those two out. And so um, if you're not going to get good responses from SSRIs or other similar drugs, ketamine may offer something in that type of patient. Um, I think for the last um, patient that we had talked about in the journal, it was something like 80% of schizophrenics at some point will have a severe episode of depression, um, and then 40% or something like that will deal with it chronically um, over their lifetime. And so um, that may be the simple and most elegant explanation, or it may just be that ketamine hits a lot of different receptors, and we're not really quite sure what it does. Well, and I think for this particular individual, too, as far as just insight in general, looking back, it it appeared that he had had um, maybe some more insight just into that he acknowledged having schizophrenia, which I feel like is a struggle um, and, you know, kind of a documented um, feature of people not acknowledging it or not being aware. And so I don't know if his level just is is a a person um, played a role as well. Um, Like you said, I think it's hard to say, but. 
Yeah, and so kind of shifting gears here, are, are you guys at all interested or or excited about the possible implications of using ketamine in these patients, or do you think there is more studies or investigations that should be done to kind of look at the role of ketamine in people with psychotic patients? I mean, it's classically been avoided because we were afraid it was going to exacerbate um, them, but if they're on a stable or even just multiple antipsychotics, it seems, in, at least in these two small cases, that there might be a, a role for it, whatever small that may be. Yeah, I think I'm always excited for new research and new medications to help treat in a different way um, than what we have, especially for people who have had refractory symptoms to um, what's available. I think this particular case um, really stood out in my mind just because of how different and how profound it was compared to other patients um, across multiple areas, you know, from an agitation and insight and um, awareness standpoint. And so absolutely, I think it's a, it's always going to be great to have further investigation into new medications and treatments, but um, definitely because we aren't exactly sure what might have happened, more research to see if it could be helpful for the schizophrenic population. Um, while, like you had said, making sure their psychosis isn't exacerbated or worsened, or maybe it even is, but it doesn't last as long. I think it's definitely a place of growth. Um, this should happen just given his improvement briefly. Yeah. And, and to add a little bit, um, what I am most excited about in this case was just that, that change again in that insight level. And so I think that anything that has that profound a change, um, in a patient's level of insight, even if it is acute and, and transient, I think, I think has the potential to, to be something really worth in investigating further. Um, and as far as, you know, ketamine specifically, um, I do think it will be difficult, you know, to kind of um, make a good case for those kinds of studies, just because of what we know about the potential to exacerbate psychotic symptoms. But, you know, I, I think about this a lot where in the field of psychiatry, um, you know, we have to be malleable and we have to be willing to take some risk um, in order to, you know, find out whether or not something can really help our patients. And, and I, I know I'm not the only one to share the frustration about how limited sometimes we, we feel like we are uh, with the treatment modalities that are available to us. And so I think it would be a disservice to to our patients, you know, knowing what we know, even, even though this is a small, you know, sample of one or two, um, you know, and so I guess, I guess what I would say is as, as the evidence continues to build and, you know, maybe there will be more case reports out there that are similar to this, maybe we'll have a little bit more, um, of that kind of scientific backbone, you know, to base these future studies on, but I would love to see more, um, emphasis on, you know, specifically NMDA antagonists, um, and longer term effects on psychotic disorders, because I think that there's a lot of untapped potential there. Yeah, and just a, a quick plug, if anybody out there is listening and they have a case that's similar to this of ketamine being used in, in psychosis patients or patients that we wouldn't typically see it, we would love to feature it when we could start a little case series at this point with the trend we've got going. So 
as we wrap up here, I was just hoping each one of you could kind of give us a takeaway point or a couple points that you had from this patient encounter that you think are important for other people to consider if they find themselves in similar situations. You know, I think one of my points isn't necessarily related to the ketamine itself, but it's more related to as a provider, um, how you are able to view patients when they're extremely agitated. I know we're always thinking about safety to patient, safety to others, um, but really being able to get a glimpse of what is that person going through and why are they acting the way that they are. I think that's um, always something to be trying to think of or trying to get into their place because um, there's so much more than just how they're acting physically. Um, and this kind of showed me that and internally, clearly he was extremely distraught and, fear and just fearful um, for his life really. And um, so to try to step back the best we can, and especially with times like this where patients are able to articulate exactly what they're experiencing, that's obviously more helpful, but um, to remember that aspect and treating the whole person um, as opposed to getting very narrow down on you know, labels or just a specific symptom. I think that's, yeah, a, a phenomenal point. Um, and the only other thing I, I would add to that is that, you know, this case made me, reminded me that you don't always know what you're walking into, um, no matter how a patient presents on paper, um, you know, until you get in there in the room with them and try to understand, you know, their, their experience and their story, um, you know, it, it's all theoretical until you get in there and start, um, talking to a patient. And the last thing I would say is, um, don't be afraid to follow kind of the, the, go down that rabbit hole. You know, if, if you get a positive response from something that isn't known to have a, a response of any sort, you know, like with this ketamine, you know, make note of it, you know, um, talk about it, um, go and explore other, you know, avenues of research and see if, you know, this is something that's novel, or maybe it's something that's um, already maybe known, but not well known, and um, see if we can keep growing the literature and um, keep helping our patients, you know, as best we can. Yeah, I think those are excellent points to kind of leave this on. So I really appreciate you both coming on. And if you guys out there listening would like to read the article, it's available on the website uh, in the latest edition, journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry.org. And uh, again, if anybody else has there any similar cases, you can always feel free to send us an email um, and we'll, we'll look into publishing it. So thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed today's interview. If you would like to submit an article for potential publication in the journal or you have further questions, please visit our website, journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry.org, or send us an email at journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry at gmail.com. To stay up to date on all the latest information regarding the journal, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening to New Perceptions.